0: Our second reading, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that. Out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to ba- deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove And lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Amen. Thank you, Keith.
1: Morning, everyone. Lovely to be here. Love to see you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that as we turn to your word, you would help us. Help us to understand, help us to see what you are doing, help us to be encouraged, enthused, strengthened, challenged, rebuked, corrected, empowered. We pray and keep me from error, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a 30-year gap in Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3. 30 years, and I don't know about you, but uh, every now and then I get thrown something like uh, those lost years, it's called, the hidden years of Jesus, and sometimes people say stupid stuff like he went to Tibet and learned how to be a Buddhist and came back. The world is full of those sort of books and that sort of conjecture, and it is the rubbish that it sounds like, but there is a 30-year gap in Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3. And we meet Jesus, not as a baby anymore, but as an adult. And we remember from chapter 1 and chapter 2, the theme of that really Matthew has been hammering home is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He's adamant that that's because it's fulfilling what God has already said in the scriptures, fulfilling his promises to Israel and to the world, son of Abraham, son of David. Jesus' life, we saw, recapitulated the movements of Israel. Israel called into existence by God himself, so Jesus. Jesus comes about by God himself. What else do we need to understand? What else do we need to know? Well, we're going to find out as we continue this in Chapter 3. Firstly, there's only two points today. It's a very strange Presbyterian sermon. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, a voice, not the voice, not John Farnham. I know Caleb gets excited when you talk about John Farnham. A voice, John the Baptist We're greeted with these words, opening three uh, three words, in those days. It's a common expression. It's a common expression in the prophets. It has overtones of the last days. Matthew, you use that term and another term similar, that day. He'll use that term 13 times. Matthew is telling us, that in the coming of Jesus and in his ministry, the last days are here. It is an apocalyptic event. And remember we said apocalyptic, not as in the Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of way or anything way like that, but actually in the way that it means, revealing, revealing what God is doing. All the world has gone on forever, it feels, But now God has come and has made his move and the world changes and it changes forever. And so we're told a voice arrives. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice Of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's arrival in the other Gospels prepares Israel to meet their God. And so here, John is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's the largely under uninhabited region around the Jordan River. It's the place where Israel first crossed into the promised land, and that's by design. John's arrival is a new beginning, a new beginning for Israel. John's message in verse 2 is simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus will say exactly the same thing in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. John the Baptist is ushering in a new age. You remember in the genealogy we saw the three generations, 14s? Remember the 14s? 28s, 34s, I can't add up. But then the last, the fourth, there was a fourth one, and the fourth one was open. That's the era we're in, and that's what Matthew is telling us. He's telling us this new era is starting and John is here to announce that God is doing his new thing. Where Moses had led Israel into the promised land in this new age, this Elijah figure, John the Baptist, is sent to prepare the way for the Lord himself, the Messiah. Hence he quotes Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is, repent, uh, sorry, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Remember in that reading, it's basically making a super highway where if you've got a mountain, you demolish it. Whether there's a valley, you fill it. You make it flat and on it will come God. And here he comes and nothing will stop him. He is coming. And that's what John is doing here. He's saying God has come. But if you've read Isaiah 40 to 55, which is a natural section, it talks about the uh, suffering servant. It talks about this servant who will come and bring about a new exodus a new exodus and establishment of Jerusalem, and it will be a blessing and a light to the world, and life to all the Gentiles will come. Here, at John's calling, Israel is meant to come. They're meant to come, be baptized, because they are still in exile. Not physically, but spiritually. Israel, by John, is being offered a new start, a renewal of the covenant. Malachi chapter 4, it indicated that an Elijah figure needed to come. And John's description by Matthew in verse 4 echoes exactly the way Elijah looks in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Malachi 4, that figure, calls Israel back to their beginnings. That's what John is doing here. This is the place where they first crossed the Jordan to go into the promised land. John is saying we need to come back because we've never actually We need a new entry into God's kingdom and his promises. Our exile hasn't finished. We need to repent, start again so that we can go in. And this time we will be led, he will say, led by God himself, the Messiah to come. Repent for us is often thought to be turning around. Have you ever heard that before? If you repent, you're going one way and then you stop going that way and you turn around. If I turn around, you get to see my back. It is my best side, but uh, you can't see me if I do that. We're often sort of that, but there's also another idea to repent. Another idea that the, New, the Old Testament often carries is to come to come back, to draw near to God. And that's what John is saying. We need to come back and draw near and start again. And so we cannot enter God's covenant, re-enter it, until we repent, we washed and repent. He says in verse 5, people went out to him from Jordan all to Judea and all the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptised, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Don't you love that sentence, not you? I've always loved that verse. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. For the axe is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is calling Israel back to God, but there are others there who come who aren't really responding for the right reasons. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we will find out and as we probably know, are the religious gatekeepers. They're the me's of the world. And they don't think they need to start again. We will find out, and that's what John is saying, and he doesn't mince his words. You brood of vipers is... Pretty fruity language. Here in Matthew, he's saying, they will not come. Why are you here? Repent and do good. The works that need to be done. John's very presence here casts him in a way that looks like Moses. Moses. He also looks like a Moses figure. He is calling people back to God's covenant and in verses 9 and 10 he's reminding them of the promises of Abraham but also the curses of the covenant of Moses. John has come to cleanse and rededicate the nation but the one to whom he will come, uh, but the one to come will do more he says in verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the holy fire and sorry, the Holy Spirit and fire. John says that there's one to come. The servant will baptize, not for repentance, but for judgment. Verse twelve explains what he means by Holy Spirit and fire. When he says he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire, I assume you might, probably, I do, think of Acts chapter 2 when at Pentecost, you know, the Spirit came and there were little fires on people, so we see. But John, as it tells you, oh, sorry, John, John explains what he means straight away in verse 12. What does by the Holy Spirit and fire? It means this. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Has anyone ever done any winnowing? You know, there was no one in went Falls that had done any winnowing either. Does anyone know anything about winnowing? I've been shown what winnowing is, but I obviously have never done any winnowing. It's even hard to say, isn't it? Say that quickly, winnowing, winnowing, winnowing. It doesn't work. So the, in would come the, uh, the harvest, the fork goes in, you toss up and the wheat goes one way over to here, the good stuff and the heavy stuff falls to the ground. That's why it's been explained to me, and that's the way it's separated here. What John says Jesus will do, he will baptise and gather his people with, by his spirit and with fire, meaning here you are, those who have ears to hear come this way, those who don't, The chaff falls to the ground. The one who will come, his message will be a sifter. It will sift the good stuff, his stuff, from the chaff. Why are they good stuff? Not because they're great, but because his spirit gathers them in. This echoes Jeremiah chapter 15. John's voice is to prepare the way for this one who is coming. It will be, and his message will be, for Israel but also to the world. It is an end time gathering of God's new kingdom that is beginning. Which brings us to the second voice in chapter, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, the voice that says, my son. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John, but John tried to deter him, it says in verse 14, saying, I need to be baptised by you and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And John consented. John has spoken of the one to come and the one he spoken of, he said, was more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And here he is. Jesus comes. He comes to be baptised. He is here to lead the new era. But John is reluctant. I need to be baptised by you, he says. John has now met the one he said he is not worthy to carry his sandals. You can imagine how he would feel. But Jesus insists and he says in verse 15, Importantly, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Now sometimes I use that phrase just as basically to tick things off as though it's all been done correctly. That's not what Jesus means here, to fulfill all righteousness Jesus has come to lead this new era and to lead this new Israel he is the new Israel and as the new Israel he is the model of covenant obedience Jesus as Israel will obey the law the Lord perfectly and so we are given that wonderful insight into what God is doing, another apocalyptic event where God history is opened up in verse 16, literally. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water and at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God had called the nation Israel his firstborn son. Here the voice says, This is my son, whom I love. With him. I am well pleased. Jesus has come to be the new Israel, to enter into the promises that God has given, and to bring them and to preach that message, to gather all those who are His, who have ears to hear because the Spirit of God is poured on them. If you look at the end of your Old Testament, and go to Matthew, and you see the gap there, you'll know, or maybe you don't know, that there are 400 years of silence between the end of the old and beginning of the new, which happens to be the book we're looking at, Matthew. 400 years where the Spirit of God has been silenced. That silence is broken when that voice speaks. And now he has poured out his spirit on his son, the Messiah, the one we know as Jesus. And from him, this spirit will go before his mission and he will gather his people as he baptises them with the spirit and fire. The descent of the spirit also is in a picture of a dove. When do you remember a dove? You might remember it in Genesis chapter 8, I suppose, when the ark was looking and, well, the dove comes back. It was the end of the flood indicating that there was a new day dawning, a new revelation heralding God's peace for all humankind. It could be that, that in Jesus we have a new day dawning. But it also, and maybe is more likely, an image of Israel. For Jesus is the total replacement of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 7 of Psalms are quoted This is my son. And added to it is Isaiah 42 Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice. To the nations. Isaiah had spoken about that servant, and he was a royal and prophetic figure. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus will be the all powerful, world conquering Messiah. But if you know Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, they're the bits that hang together in Isaiah naturally, you know that there is also another figure. The servant, which has been spoken of. The servant who is a suffering servant. And during those 400 years of silence, and even up to today, people are wondering in Isaiah, how do you hold together the world-conquering Messiah and the suffering servant? They are separate almost. They seem irreconcilable to bring them together. What we are seeing here is that those two are being brought together, that the Messiah, if you like, is being redefined as the spirit-anointed suffering servant of God, the one in David's royal line who will bring forgiveness by his suffering. And to all who the Spirit of God would gather from every tribe and every nation, he will be their righteousness. Jesus' origin lies in God himself. Israel was only called into existence by God himself. This son of God will also be the suffering servant, and we've seen the start and the hint of that opposition. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are here. You brood of vipers, they will oppose And they will be the players in Jesus' suffering. But he will save his people from their sins. Remember his name? He will be also Emmanuel, God with us. We asked at the start, what do we need to understand further? What are we going to get? Well, Jesus, did you notice, still in this is still a distant figure. He is not right in the passage speaking to us. We're still speaking of him. But Jesus has come as Israel's as Israel, God's own Son. He has come to lead a new era where God's people will live with him, he will be their people, and they will be with him, and they will he will be their God. They are returning not from a physical exile, but a spiritual one. He is God with us. He will suffer and bring covenant renewal. But through his work, his suffering obedience, a new covenant will be established. And Jesus will gather by his spirit from the four corners of the world and is doing so today. I miss Graham's uh, part of uh, what he said about uh, ministry. Have you said that yet? You haven't said that We're yet. Waiting We're waiting for me. Well, Graham is going to come and give us a, an example of what God is doing in our world this, this Sunday in Indigenous ministry. I'm really happy that I haven't missed it because God is still gathering his people, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Graham, would you like to come and tell us about ministry to our Indigenous brothers and
0: sisters?
2: Uh, can you hear me okay, Bill, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Early in uh, 2008, um, I was the C- CEO of Bible League in Australia. I'd been in that role since April. 2004. It was my custom to, uh, during the course of the year, to visit at least once all the states in our country. Um, and in 2008, I visited Darwin. Um, at a um, a place like this. Darwin. I would visit churches. I'd sometimes speak at churches. I visited major donors to thank them for their generosity. I called on other ministries and I had a similar pattern with each state I visited. Whilst in Darwin, I made time to speak with David Glasgow and his wife Kathy, and if you could put that as up there. They had been missionaries uh, with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. They'd been up in um uh, part of Darwin where um uh they have these uh, part of Northern Territory rather, where they have these areas that uh, were supervised by the Australian government. And um, there was a people group up there of 500 people in this group. And David and his uh, wife, Kathy, spent 30 years translating the Bible into the broader language. So when people were conducting Bible studies, when they were speaking at churches, they could use language that the Wurrata people um, had. Um. What was interesting about this was that um, with this group of 500 people, they were next door to another group of 500 or 1,000 people And so went right across the top end of Australia. But nobody could speak the language of the neighbouring tribe or people group. And when I visited David and uh, Cathy to thank them for their work and to thank them for uh, their willingness to translate Bible studies into the broader language after they'd shown me what they've done and they had this beautiful Bible and they had an 800 page encyclopedia of terms and how the whole uh, thing was put together. Um, It was work that I was just blown away by. I couldn't understand uh, the extent to which they'd gone. To complete this translation, Kathy was uh, in her very late 70s when I met them. David was just over 80. But he said to me at the end of uh, our discussion about the Burrata people group, he said, We haven't finished. He said, Kathy wants to go to. Um, be with the brother people and to have Bible studies and to put that language together, uh, I think we need to start a new translation, a translation of the English that Aboriginal people spoke when they wanted to speak to each other. It had certain... um, It had certain terms that were a little different. And he said, can you help? Now, I'd uh, spoken to a lot of Bible translators, but I'd never been asked whether we could help do another translation. And I said, what do we need to do? And he said, well, we need to get a group of translators we need to have somebody in charge of those. We need somebody to uh, administer the program and eventually publish um, a a um, a Bible like that. Um, what was really wonderful was that that conversation led to a meeting we had in the Bible Society of South Australia's rooms. Did you bring that? Oh, there it is. I have a lot of trouble speaking because I don't breathe enough. So in that uh, training room at the Bible Society of Adelaide, we had a meeting of about 10 or 12 people. Um, I was a networker. I used to bring people together, people who had a similar interest. And uh, so it was my job to go around and knock on doors of other Bible um, um, Bible, um societies and, and also ministries and trying to identify people uh, who could do this translation. We met, including Keith Letcher, Uh Cliff, Cliff Ledger. Uh, he and I went down together. We shared a, a room at a local hotel. We didn't drink, but um, it was a, a hotel that was convenient to the Bible Society. And uh, at the end of that meeting on that day, it was unanimous that we start another translation, um, which was then called in our in our early um, time, um, the um, easy to read version. And now it's the plain English version. So um, we will fast track three years. After three years, I was invited by Bible League International uh, to head up all their programs in um, Asia, from India, uh, right around up to the west, western side of the Pacific. It was a huge job. I loved it. And it was go go go, and I was away from home too much because I used to get very tired, which I didn't realise at the time. But it was leading up to what what I'm dealing with today. During those three years, not because I wanted to, but because my role had changed. I was now working for the ministry based in Chicago. My boss was in Chicago. And I lost touch with um, what this translation people had done. I didn't get feedback. I didn't get people telling me about what was done, and my fear was it had died a natural death. (laughs) Um, But that wasn't the case. um, Three or four uh, weeks ago, the current... CEO of Bible League Australia, and that's him. Uh, that's David. And Kathy. that's him. He looks a bit like me without the beard. Um, and his head actually shines a bit more than mine. So um, But we have some similarities. He, his similarity with me, his connection with me, was that I was always passionate about what I did. I, it excited me. And I love being a part of it. And he handed me this Bible, which is the New Testament, Genesis, and 1 and 2 Samuel. And this little book about the Bible, which helped you uh, look for parts of the Bible that are applicable to your culture and understanding. He said, you started this. And I felt like crying. Because what I'd started and thought may have died out had actually the whole project had been fulfilled. And I just couldn't believe it. One of the reasons I couldn't believe it was that a few weeks before that I was thinking about my past ministry and I kept asking myself, what did I make a difference? And, you know, I tended to be my own worst uh, judge, but in being handed this completed work, I realised that I had done something that had a lot of significance. But the other thing I realised straight away was that it wasn't about Graham Smith. It was all about God. And if it hadn't have been for God and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing all these people together and completing a major work together... Um, I was just blown away by. Um, I wanted to encourage you also by the fact that you may do things in a formal way as a member of the church or quietly. You might be speaking to someone and so a word of encouragement. You don't know what will happen in the long term, but be encouraged because God is at work. Thank you, Keith.